Guys, on uh, this uh, historic calendar day for the church, right? Historically, the church has a name. Do you know this has a name this Sunday? Anybody? Palm Sunday. Why is it called Palm Sunday? Well, here's what we know from Peter. If you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, you know we're looking at the life and death of Jesus the King, and we're looking at it through the eyes uh, and the words and the recounting of Jesus' most famous disciple, Peter, it was his final retelling of the story of Jesus, his friend, his teacher, the one he had walked with for three years during Jesus' earthly ministry, right? And now the one, Peter, who has been for the last 30 years going around the, the known first century world doing exactly what Jesus told him to do, to go and make disciples of mine, of Jesus's. A disciple is a, a student, a, a learner, or a follower. That's what Peter's been out doing. Now, these 30 years later, he finds himself in prison awaiting execution. He doesn't know for sure, but that's what was going to happen to him in Nero's Rome. And he is, with all of the, the context and, and the clarity and the color that 30 years of reflection and, and imminent death, of course, can bring, he's, he's telling this story one last time to his traveling companion, a, a man named John Mark. It was a story that Mark likely had to sneak out of Rome. But the coolest thing, and again, you know, <laughs> I hope you hear me saying these things all the time, pointing you towards history. You can pull up on your phone right now this eyewitness, this firsthand eyewitness account of the life of Jesus by Peter. You know it. We know it as the Gospel of Mark. Because while the words are likely those of Peter's, it was Mark who was documenting everything that he said from that jail. And here's what we know about this day, this Palm Sunday, from some 20 centuries ago. The New International Version of the, the Bible, the NIV translators, captioned this part of Mark's writing. Mark didn't write this, but the, the translators did. They captioned this, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Why? Because that was the way he was greeted. Peter told Mark as they came into the city of Jerusalem that week, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches. There's where you get the concept of palms from. Many spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They understood what was about to happen. They thought they understood what was about to happen. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The crowd, and again, crowd is such a primary word for, for what Peter keeps explaining to Mark. In almost every chapter, I think except two, in almost every chapter in Mark's gospel, the word crowd appears, and often several times per chapter. There's always these overwhelming crowds following Jesus. And again, as he rides into Jerusalem to, to kick off what we now, now call Holy Week, crowds everywhere, people pressing in. And as they gather, as Jesus rides into town, they begin to sing Psalm 118. And that's where they get this word Hosanna from. Psalm 118, verse 25, here's what it said. Hosanna, which essentially means, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. If you go back in your Bible, you'd see that. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And that was their wish, because that's what kings do, right? Especially rival, rival kings. In Jerusalem, word had gotten all around town about 
Jesus' authoritative teaching, we talked about that last week. Jesus doesn't teach like any other teacher of the law and the prophets. He teaches, they say over and over, with authority. The, the, the key word there being author, it's, it's almost as if they're saying to themselves, it's not like he's interpreting these words. It's like he's the author of these things, the author of life itself. Word had gotten to Jerusalem about, about the miracles. If you read the Gospel of Mark, you will notice just rapid succession. Miracle, 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 miracle. There's 22 of them that Peter tells Mark to write down in total, in total including 11 healings. And now, right, now, he, he is doing, Jesus is doing what Israel's coming king had been prophesied to do. He's riding into Jerusalem. And, and the thought was, the reason they're crying out, Hosanna, right? Bless us, save us, grant us success. The reason they're crying that out is they believe that Jesus is riding into town to inaugurate his kingdom. And he is. But they think that means the end of the Roman kingdom, the, the end of, of the Romans who are, who are over, kind of over Israel at this point, the, the latest and greatest nation to conquer Israel. If you close your eyes, right, you can see on, on one half of the road there's people wearing blue hats, and they're saying, Jesus is going to build back better. <laughs> and there's people on the other side of, that, of the road, and they're wearing red hats, and they're going... Make Israel great again. <laughs> and here comes Jesus, marching down the middle of them. But look, church person or not this morning, you know how the story ends, don't you? How that week in Jerusalem would end. The people were crying out for a king to grant them success and, and to save them. Jesus was that king. In fact, Jesus would do all of those things. But yet, almost all of these same people are likely the same ones that, that cry out again regarding Jesus in just a few days, crucify him. What? Why? What happened? Where did, the, where did it go wrong? Who flipped the script, right? And Peter, right? Peter, when it was all happening, right, he would be the first to admit, I, I, I didn't... I didn't understand it then. In fact, he, he's going to explain in a second that he didn't. What happened to this king and to this coming kingdom? To understand how it all went so wrong so fast, you got to jump back in the story a little bit. Here, here's what, if you've been with us since we started a few weeks ago, here's what we've discovered so far. For Peter, Christianity, right, as he saw it, now 30 or years or so later, after Jesus' resurrection, with all of that clarity, Christianity is not a religion. It wasn't for Peter an add-on to the old religion of Judaism. It, it wasn't for Peter a moral code. It wasn't a plan. It wasn't a pathway. It wasn't a, a series of steps towards God or enlightenment or purpose or wholeness. It wasn't any of those things. For Peter, Christianity, after all these years, boiled down to one word. It was news. With time being of the essence for Peter... He has Mark communicate what he's sharing in verse 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. For Peter, Christianity is simply this. It's news, and it's news about a new king. He calls Jesus, and he still believes it 30 years later. After all he's seen, 
After all that's happened to him, after watching follower after follower be, be persecuted and put to death, after all he's seen himself on death row now, he still says that his friend and teacher was the Messiah. In Greek, he was the Christ. He's claiming that Jesus is the long-promised, long-awaited-for, anointed king sent from God. And then he, he, he takes it one step further. He calls him not just king, but God. He is the God king. For Peter, he has news for you, and it's about his friend, the king, the son of God. What's the news? Well, according to Peter, Jesus would declare this same news wherever he went. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Here it is. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. This, friends, if you, know, if you get nothing out of this series, you should be able to explain to someone whenever you, whenever you leave here. The gospel of Jesus is this. The kingdom of God has come near. It's close. It's a kingdom of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness, kindness, hope, faith, forgiveness, justice, and grace. It's a kingdom not of geography but of the heart. It's a kingdom of the soul. It's a kingdom of the conscious. It has come near. Why? Because Jesus the king has come, and where the king goes, so goes his kingdom. That was the news. And, and Jesus' advice to you, and, and I guess our advice to others, would be in light of that news, right? What do you do with it? We've looked at this week after week, right? We've looked at it relative to smoking and, and diet and health and exercise and, 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 and um, skin care, you name it, right? What do you do with news? You can defy it. You can ignore it. You can accept it as true. But you have to figure out what you're going to do about it. Because if you accept it as true, you have to reorient your lives around it or it won't matter if you think it's true. Friends, understand that it won't matter. Does it matter that you know you should eat healthy and exercise? Right? It doesn't matter. I fully believe that. Right? A, bi a big believer in it. That doesn't help me. That's what you do with news. You have to decide, A, is it true? And if it is, am I willing to reorient my life around the story? Which is why Jesus had a simple command when he would explain the news. Here's the news. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe the good news. Repent. Reorient how you live your life, how you make your decisions, the, the direction in which you, you're going based on the fact that there is a new kingdom and it's near. And so stop living out old kingdom stories. Stop following old kingdom lies. Live in the light of a, a new king and a coming kingdom. I challenge you when we began this story a few weeks ago to, to take advantage of the amazing opportunity you, you actually have. You've got to, this is crazy. You have the ability on your phone to read Peter's firsthand account. The entire thing would take you a little over an hour or so. It's not too late. It's not too late to do it in preparation for, for Friday night and Easter Sunday. We're only going to get halfway through Mark today, and then we pick it up on Good Friday. I hope you're planning to be with us on Good Friday. But what you're going to see in a moment is when we end, you're going to see right in the middle of the book, the story hinges right in chapter 8 on Peter answering the same question that Mark wants you and I to answer based on what he's telling us. 
It's the, it's, it's the one thing that Mark began his gospel trying to answer. It's the one I told you I encouraged our elder board several years ago. I said, guys, we have built up a lot of nostalgia and story and narrative around Jesus. I want you to take Peter's firsthand account. I want you to sit down like you've never heard of this man before, and I want you to read it and keep asking yourself, who is this guy and what does he want? That's the question. That's why Mark wrote this, because he wants to answer that question for you. He wants to tell you what he discovered. Who is this guy, and what does he want? The question comes up several times in Peter's recounting. Again, chapter 1, if you know the story, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the, the one who had come to prepare the way for Jesus, the one who was so convinced that, that Jesus was who Peter claimed him to be, right, the king, the son of God, that he actually leapt in the womb of his mother when Mary showed up pregnant at his mother's home. And yet John wound up, much like Peter, John wound up awaiting execution too. Not under Nero and Rome, but under Herod. In Israel, and, and as John was in prison, much like Peter is now as he's writing this, John then had a question he wanted answered from that cell. Because he had heard from his cell about all of the teachings, the miracles, right? All the healings that are going on. And yet for John, he's looking around and his circumstances aren't good. They're not actually changing. Which causes him to ask the same question that Peter is trying to answer. Matthew said that he... He sent his disciples back to Jesus, and he asked them, Are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Are you the one we've been expecting, or should we be looking for somebody else? I, I want you to see that's the question that underpins Peter's entire story, because Peter now finds himself in the place, same place John did. Some 30 years later, Peter's pretty sure of the answer, though. And it wasn't an easy conclusion for him to draw. I think sometimes we read these things and we're like, well, of course, of course you would think that Jesus is who he said he is. Peter didn't. Jesus didn't make it easy. The kingdom that he kept speaking of and inviting people into, it was, I mean, could we just like, I mean, you shouldn't say these things in church, but I mean, I'll put it gently, this kingdom, this king was to say, to put it gently, he was a little unusual. Most people of the day would have said that he was blasphemous. As we've seen over the last few weeks, the people that were invited into this kingdom by this king were the people that most every other kingdom is trying to keep out. Lepers, and prostitutes, whores, tax collectors, the sick, the poor, the broken, the marginalized. His teachings, again, controversial to say the least. I would tell you... If, if somebody walked into church and said some of the things that Jesus said, we might call him blasphemous today. I mean, he goes around claiming to have authority to forgive sins. And then he, he would prove that he did by reversing the curse of sin and, and healing people. He seemed to have no regard for cultural or religious norms. For the kings or the priests that benefited and upheld them, he would do things. We talked about it last week. Radical things, like things you're not supposed to do, heal on the Sabbath. His disciples, they would just flout religious practices. And why? So key, because the kingdom that he was inaugurating, it was something brand new. It was not. This, this is a key teaching. 
If you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand it was not a kingdom of this world, and it was not a new religion, and it was not an add-on to the existing rules and laws that govern Judaism. It wasn't Judaism 2.0. Jesus, he's trying to help everyone understand it, and we talked about this last week. I won't go into it, but at one point, Peter says, here's how he explained it. He goes, nobody sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Right? They understood when, when, when something, your pants ripped, right? And you had to put a patch on, you would, you would have to wash the patch first. Or, or if you just put a new thing on the old one, right? If you just put a new thing on the old one, it would rip and ruin, ruin both. He goes, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No. They pour new wine into new wineskins. I'm doing something that you can't possibly, you can't possibly have any context for. You've never seen anything like this. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom, his kingdom doesn't play nice with other kingdoms. Doesn't play nice with religions. Doesn't fold neatly in. It's brand new. It's something radical and, and quite controversially different. How controversial was it? Well, Peter told Mark that when word got back from Galilee up in the northern regions of Israel, when word made its way back to Jerusalem about what was going on in, in Galilee, right, people, the teachers of the law, came into town to deal with this, to, to put an end to the whole thing. Why? Because new kings and new kingdoms are dangerous to old kings and old kingdoms. And as we saw last week, they, they make for some pretty strange bedfellows. Peter told Mark that the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem, and, and, and they said about all of that was happening, he, speaking of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So the religious leaders of the day, the priests, the guys with the collars, the robes, the platforms, they said he was demonic. Did you know that? How about this, Peter went on. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. Even Peter now needs to say again. And again a crowd gathered. A crowd so big that his disciples weren't even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. The priest thought a demon was to blame. His family thought he was insane. So which is it? Who is this guy? See, for Peter, this question is always lingering. It's always hanging in the air. Is he out of his mind? Is he insane? Is he demonic? Some of you know the story. Once the disciples, in order again, Mark, Mark writes that Peter said, to get away from the crowds, they, they hop into a boat and they, they head out to sea and a storm kicks up. Peter was there in the boat, and he tells Mark, he, he, the quote is, it was a furious squall. Emphasis on furious. The boat's getting swamped. It's getting taken under. Peter, I'm imagining he's, he's telling Mark this story. He's got to be shuddering, remembering the, the, the cold and the rain and the waves, the near-death experience. He looks at Mark, and he says to him, he says, here's the amazing thing. We, we were sure we were going to die. And we look back, and Jesus is, shakes his head, he looks at Mark, he goes, Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. 
And it was then that Peter and the other disciples had a John the Baptist moment out there at sea. Because right then, and maybe this is true for you this morning, right then, their personal circumstances seemed fairly bleak. And when they went to wake Jesus, again, he's sleeping in the storm. How is that possible? Well, I guess when you're sure of who your father is and who's ultimately in control and what he thinks of you, you would be amazed at how a citizen of a different kingdom can live and sleep and walk and live in this one. And so they wake Jesus up. And, and do you know what the first thing is? This is one of, this is to me is one of my favorite stories in the scripture because it's just so true about my life and I think it's probably true about yours. When they wake him up, what is the first thing that they ask him? Do they say, Jesus, help us, we're about to drown? No. Do they say, Jesus, save us, we're about to die? No. Jesus, wake up, we think the life jackets might be under you. <laughs> no. They ask him a John the Baptist question. They wake him up and they say, this is crazy. This is what they ask them. This just shows you how, how little they still understood of what was happening. They wake Jesus up and they look at him and they go, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus, John wondered, don't you even care if I'm in jail? Teacher, don't you even care if we drown? Friends, do you see what circumstances can do in your life? They can not only make you question God's authority and his power and his identity, but they can also make you question his character and his goodness. Some of you know Jesus, he, he wakes up and he, he calms the storm with only a word. Before the this is, think this one through. Before the disciples were scared of the storm outside of the boat, now they're even more terrified of the storm inside of the boat. Peter tells Mark that we were terrified. And we asked each other, notice, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. There's a question again. It all goes back to the news. Who is this? Story continues. Peter tells Mark about more miracles and, and more healings. And, and then he says, This is another. Oh, these are so many. I'm telling you, you should read the scriptures. This stuff, if you just you read this and you go, This can't be true. It's just a short time later, right? And friends, if this doesn't make you understand that you have a role to play in this new kingdom, it doesn't matter how long you've been, been involved in it, and it doesn't matter how much you fully understand, Peter tells Mark that Jesus summons them all together, and he sends them out to go town to town, two by two, to start to declare the news about Jesus, news that they don't even fully understand. <laughs> They don't even really get who he is themselves. They just asked who he was, and Jesus goes, great. I commission you. You're qualified to be an evangelist. And he sends them out, and you know what he sends them out? Here's what Martin Peter goes, you know what we did? We went out two by two, and we preached that people should repent. In light of the truth, in light of the good news that there is a new king and a new kingdom, here's what we preach to them. You should change your mind. You should change the way you live because there's a new king and a new kingdom. Stop living in the old kingdom. Stop believing the lies of the old kingdom. 
Peter doesn't understand it at all. He does not understand the gospel as you know it. Peter doesn't go out to proclaim uh, that Jesus was going to die for people's sins. That's not even on Peter's mind. Peter says there's a new king, there's a new kingdom that's come. You should repent and believe. You should change the way you live, what you value in light of the news. And for Peter, the story, this is super fascinating the way Mark wrote this. The story culminates right in the center of the book. Literally, it changes on the edge of a knife. He tells Mark, Jesus and his disciples went on to villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, are you ready? Who do people say I am? There it is again, right? But now it's not John asking the questions from his jail. It's not the people in the streets. It's not the priests back in Jerusalem. It's, it's not the, the Romans that are, are trying to keep the peace. It's not the Jews. It's not the crowds. Now it's Jesus asking the question, who do people say I am? And, and so they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. He, he was an a, a Old Testament prophet. And still others, one of the prophets. Friends, times change, answers don't. If you walked out onto the green of Morristown and, 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 and took a camera with you and held up a microphone and said, who, who do you think Jesus is? It would be the same now as it was then. He's a prophet. He's a teacher. He's a, he's a wise man, a good man. He's a spiritual man. And here is where for Peter it gets very, very personal and the whole story changes. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And I'm guessing there's some silence in the group. Maybe everybody kind of looks around sheepishly for a moment. And then the silence is broken with this. Peter answered, you're the Messiah. In the Greek, you're the Christos. You are the anointed one of God. You are the king. Peter declares it for the very first time, and friends, with that declaration, the entire story of Jesus of Nazareth changes. Everything immediately changes. When Peter knows who he is, the whole story changes. The first half, the first eight chapters all have to do with getting Peter to this point. The healings, the teachings with authority, the miracles. Peter finally believes the news, and Peter is willing to repent now himself, to change the way he thinks, to reorient his, his, to reorient his life and his purpose in light of this truth. At least that's what he thought. Because if Peter is sure that Jesus is this Christos and this king, what is that going to make Peter, right? I mean, Peter is going to be the king's right-hand man. Peter is going to have the power and the authority and the fame and the fortune and the respect, the position and the status that has never been afforded to him up until that moment. Peter's got to be thinking, right? He's got to be convinced by now. He's got to be going, it's not just Israel that's going to become great again. It's going to be me too. I'm going to be somebody. That's how he thinks he's going to reorient his life. 
Jesus will help me reorient my life so I can be somebody. It is going to be for Peter a life of greatness, which is what makes the next line so powerful. Because immediately, at once, as soon as Peter makes that declaration, the story turns. He then began, Jesus, right on the heels of this confession, right when they finally got it and they said, we're willing to reorient our lives around this news, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. I mean, he was just trying as clear as he could to get them to understand he spoke plainly about this. And Peter, Peter said, Jesus, thank you for your willingness to pay the price for my sin. And Peter dropped to his knees in awe-inspired wonder about the love Jesus had for him in order to die in his place. And Peter accepted Jesus into his heart. No. He didn't do any of those things. I mean, you got to picture Peter telling this story to Mark, too. I can't help but, but wonder if Mark tried to talk him out of sharing this part, right? I mean, this just makes Peter look as bad as anybody could look. I think it makes it, you know, we always talk about Peter, oh, he looked so bad when he denied Jesus three times. I, I think this is much more embarrassing. There's actually something called the criterion of embarrassment. It's a... It's a type of historical analysis in which a historical account is deemed likely to be true under the inference that the author would have no reason to invent a historical account that might embarrass them. If you ever wonder if the scriptures are true, the fact that this story is here would be like one, proof 101, right? Because this is embarrassing. But he tells Mark, write it down because other people are going to struggle with this too. They need to know what happened. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter rebuked Jesus. This is a powerful word. It is the same word that is used when Jesus, when Jesus drives out demons. He rebukes Jesus, rebukes demons. Peter rebuked Jesus. Why? Because from the time Peter was a little boy, he had been hearing the stories about a promised king that was one day going to come and set everything right. Israel would be restored. God's people would assume their right place in the world. Peter had just confessed that he believed Jesus was that king. And this king was teaching not only that he was going to suffer and die, but that it must happen. At this moment, Peter can now count himself among those who found Jesus.
Like, that's not the quote. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that sound a little better. So some guy in Mendham 2,000 years later isn't up there sharing what a boob I am, right? <laughs> Satan, get behind me. Satan. This is how significant this moment is in the history of the world. Peter says to Mark, then he called the, the crowd to him. There it is again. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The gospel. The gospel, the good news that there's a new king and a new kingdom. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Jesus explains what it means to believe and repent. What does it mean in the kingdom of God to reorient yourself, to change the way you think, the way you live, what you value in light of believing in the new kingdom? And essentially it's this, everything is upside down. This kingdom of Jesus is, is an upside down kingdom. If you want to live, you must die. If you want to follow me, it won't be a to a throne, it'll be to a cross. In this kingdom, we don't glorify or indulge ourselves. We deny ourselves for the sake of others. I don't think they liked it. I know they, they didn't get it. Peter didn't get it. None of them did. I mean, honestly, let me, it's just a question. Do we? Like 2,000 years later. Do we? In fact, Peter would tell Mark, Jesus had to explain the same thing over and over and over because they refused to get it. Do we? Very next chapter, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Of course they were afraid to ask him about it, wouldn't you? I mean, I don't like that part of the story. If that's what's going to happen to Jesus, then what do you think is going to happen to the disciples? This is not the way they want to reorient, in their, reorient their lives in light of good news. Next verse. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road as they walked, as Jesus was telling this for the first time and the second time? Hey, while I was telling you about how I was going to suffer and die for everybody, what were you guys talking about, by the way? I couldn't quite hear. What were you talking about? And by the way, Jesus, we saw earlier in the story, he, he, can, he could understand people's hearts. He, 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 he knew what they were talking about. He just asked them, what were, what were you arguing about on the road again, guys? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. They wanted to reorient their lives in light of Jesus and this new kingdom, and they wanted to reorient their lives around being great. Jesus is king, and it's about me being great. Jesus is going to die. Still for them, still for me, I mean, I mean, don't you want to be great? Like, I, I really do want to be great. And so Jesus tries again. Third time. Again, I encourage you to go home and look at this. 
Sitting down, Jesus called the 12, and he said, anybody who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. They didn't get it. Do you? Next chapter. They're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Of course he is, because they're pretty certain they don't want to go at this point. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside, and he told them again what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. We are going to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the way, and the disciples are afraid. And you know why they're afraid? Because this is the third time, and they still have human concerns in mind. What were those concerns? The very next verse. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I can imagine Jesus. Can you imagine what would you like me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. What were their concerns? Jesus, would you make us great? We'd like to be great. Can, can we get the positions of power and glory and prestige and authority in your kingdom? And I love the next line so much. This is so good. It's Peter confessing it about himself, too, again. When the ten, the other ten disciples, when the other ten disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Why? Because they could not believe that Jesus, uh, that they would ask Jesus such a thing in light of all the teachings. No, that's not why. They're indignant because they, they feel like those two clowns cut them off in line. Right? <laughs> That's why they're indignant. They jumped the line. It's like they, they, they formed an alliance in the game of Survivor or something, right? They can't believe they would do this, not to Jesus, but to them. They still have human concerns. They, they still have themselves first in mind. Peter tells Mark that then Jesus called... Do you sense this is over and over? Do you sense this? Jesus called... Okay, hold on. Everybody come back over. Let's go over it again. He goes, you know, those who regard themselves as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials, they exercise authority over them. I mean, of course, you know that, right? They knew it. Their, their history, like our history, is filled with that story. This is what rulers always do. They knew the story of their people. They could go all the way back, how, 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 how the Israelites had suffered under Pharaoh in Egypt for over 400 years. They, they knew what Pharaohs did then. They, they built massive pyramids to declare their greatness for all of time. It's been commonly believed that Ramses was the Pharaoh at the time of, of the Exodus. This is actually the mummy of Ramses. Discovered in 1881. It's now housed in Cairo's National Museum of Egyptian Civilization. Ramsey thought himself worthy of mummification. Why? He, he needed to be deified. He needed to be glorified, right? 
What did Ramsey do? He glorified himself at, at his, and his nation at the expense of other people and other nations. And he left behind pyramids. We all know of his greatness. The disciples knew because their history was written in the, the books of the laws and the prophets. And, and that history contained not just stories about Ramses, stories about the Babylonian Empire led by King Nebuchadnezzar. A ruthless, cruel king that destroyed Jerusalem and forced the Jewish people into exile. Again, friends, I want you to understand these are not ancient myths. This is very real history. This is the Ishtar Gate, which Nebuchadnezzar constructed about 575 BC. It was the, the eighth gate of the city of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar in gold had inscribed on it. You can go see this in the Ber Berlin Museum. Right atop, so everyone would know when they walked in, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the pious prince. This is what rulers and high officials do, right? They make themselves great at the expense of others. And of course, it wasn't for the disciples just long ago history. They were living it right then. Rome was Israel's latest and greatest conqueror, led by Caesar Augustus. What did Caesar do? He, he claimed divinity, ruled with power and authority and by fear. In Israel at that time, heck, the disciples might have had one of these in their pocket at the time. Money had Caesar's image on it. Jesus would later say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar was the first Roman emperor to have his effigy put on a coin during his lifetime. Why? Because by doing so, he wanted to show the entire world that he was the absolute ruler of the world. In fact, written on the coin is Caesar, the son of God. You know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Of course they knew. They begrudged it and they hated it and they suffered under it. And you know what else? They wanted it. They wanted it too. Don't you? Don't you want to be great? Don't you want to be powerful and successful and revered and remembered? I mean, I do. It's funny, the older I get, the more I realize that's probably not going to happen for me. You know, I drive around Manhattan. I was in Chicago recently. You just see all the names, everybody's names on these giant buildings. I was talking to my son, John, the other night. He um, works in Abu Dhabi now, my son, and he's going... He's by himself, so he's going to Israel for uh, Easter Sunday. He's flying in Good Friday, and he's staying through Easter Sunday. He's just going to experience things over there. And so I was talking to him Friday night, and he said, I'm reading the book of Isaiah, Dad, in preparation for this. I want to I really understand what was going on. I said, that's really cool. And I, I said, I, I'm talking about this concept of being great and how I really want to be great. I said, John, i got to tell you, I don't think I'm going to get there. I said, uh, I, 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 I don't think I'm going to be seeing any buildings with my name on it. I said, if I'm honest with you, at this point, I'm just thinking tombstone, right? <laughs> like, you know, you get to a certain age, you're kind of like, look, I don't want anything too grandiose, but something kind of, you know, like he was here, right, kind of thing. And so John goes, this is, this is the Lord, right? This is just Friday night. He goes, you know, it's funny you say that, Dad. He said, uh, God, God spoke through Isaiah about that exact thing. I said, God spoke to Isaiah about somebody wanting to make a name for themselves by, by having a nice tombstone? He goes, yeah. I said, oh, I can't believe that. And he sent it to me. Here's what 
what Isaiah said. Go say this to the steward, to Shebna, the palace administrator. What you are doing here and who... Uh, what are you doing here, and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in this rock? Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He will row you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there the chariots you were so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. My son sent me this. <laughs> This rebuke of, right, of pride and vanity and security. What vanity is all earthly glandure, with which death winds up just eroding it. I mean, I want, but I still want to be great. I mean, don't you want to be great? Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And then four words, which you and I need to hear this Palm Sunday, and probably every Palm Sunday, probably every Sunday for the rest of our lives. Four words. Listen to me. Not so with you. Corey, not so with you. Daisy, not so with you. Bill, not so with you. Diana, not so with you. Mike, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Holy smokes. <laughs> I want to be great. No, I don't. <laughs> for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you want to be great? Become the servant of all. Do you want to live? Be willing to die. Do you want to be first? Go to the back of the line. It's an upside-down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's an upside-down kingdom where the king, listen to this, the king is not demanding you lay your life down for him, but he's commanding you lay it down for one another. Peter didn't get it, at least not then. He did these 30 years later, now that he sits in a prison, waiting to pick up his own cross. Peter didn't get it. He wanted to be great, but he wanted to be great by the world's definition. How about you? How bad do you want to be great? Enough to believe and repent? Enough to reorient your life and your goals and your plans and your hopes and your self-evaluations around this news? I'll ask you another one. How about this? If this is actually the news, can I ask you, for you, is it good? Is it good? This is the king. This is the kingdom. And you have been invited into it. And now, let me tell you, now he is going to Jerusalem. And there will be crowds. Lots and lots of crowds. There always are. The question for us this Palm Sunday is, as this new kingdom and new kingdom come into focus, which crowd will you be in? The crowds shouting Hosanna in light of an upside-down kingdom? Or crucify him? Peter has a closing question for you. Do you want to be great? Because you have to ask yourself, 
Who is he? Let's stand and close the song.